Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and this is another one of our Q&A sessions we have with previous guests, which allows our viewers and followers to ask them any questions they would like to hear the answer to. On this show, we have Mark Asara, who is a former US Air Force KC-135 pilot and now turned author. So remember, if you want to help the show keep going, you can visit us at patreon.com forward slash aircrew interview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Or you can donate by visiting us at aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate. Thank you and enjoy. Thank you, folks, for dialing in. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to view this and to spend some time with me here on the YouTube channel. I'm grateful to Mike for setting this up. And uh, it's a beautiful day here in the colonies, <laughs> a little cold, <clears throat> but I want to take the opportunity to tell you about my book, Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit. All of us are familiar with the events on 9-11. And that particular morning, I was in Fairchild Air Force Base in Spokane, Washington, now, because of the time zones, it was very early in Spokane. It was uh, 5.50 in the morning when I got a phone call. My wife got a phone call from a very dear friend of hers, and she's going, where's Mark? Where's Mark? Where's Mark? And I could hear her through the phone. And I woke up, and I'm like, what's going on? And I could hear Stacy, my wife's friend, say, you need to turn on the TV. <clears throat> An airplane has hit one of the World Trade Center towers. And immediately I'm like going, how could that happen? And I'm, as I turn on the TV and I'm watching the cable news channel, I'm thinking to myself, how did a pilot with tens of thousands of hours run an airplane into a building on a clear and visibility unlimited day. And in my subconscious mind, I knew we were under attack, but my conscious mind didn't want to believe it. And it was during that time period when I was laying in bed at 6.03 in the morning, I watched the second airplane come from the right side, disappear behind the buildings and then saw the big explosion. I went from fast asleep to full up war in about 30 seconds. I immediately got up, ran to the shower, <clears throat> because I don't know why I thought this. I didn't want to go to war with messy hair. I, I didn't know when I was going to be back home, and I just wanted to take a quick shower and be able to run a comb through my wet head. <clears throat> I don't know why I thought that. That's what I was thinking. I was only in the shower for three minutes when the wing commander at my base called and said, you need to come in now. And my wife had already thrown a flight suit and my boots out. She asked me, when are you going to be home? I told her, honey, I have no idea when I'm going to be home. Take care of the kids. Uh, I'll call you at some point in time. Went down, hopped in the car, and started off for the base. The first thing that 
caught my eye was all of the law enforcement folks that were out were completely kitted out with shotguns, helmets, visors, um, uh, flak vests, everything as I'm driving into work. While I'm going into work, I'm thinking of all of the planning things that I have to do because I realize that we are the main tanker base on the West Coast and our tankers are going to have to support whatever fighters are going to be launched to protect the major cities. I knew an F-15 burns 8,000 pounds an hour at tactical speeds, 2,000 pounds a minute when it's an afterburner. The F-15 holds about 25,800 pounds. So if you do the math in afterburner, it can burn through all of its gas in about 12 minutes. An F-16 burns about 2,800 pounds an hour, 1,100 pounds an afterburner, but it only holds about 11,500 pounds. So it can burn through all of its gas and afterburner in under 10 minutes. The F-18s at Lemoore kind of have the same uh, burn rate as the uh, uh, the Hornets have the same burn rate as the F-15s. Obviously, they're made by McDonnell Douglas. Uh, and both airplanes burn about the same. So I'm driving into work and I'm thinking I have to defend the major population cities of Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego. That's a distance of 1,349 miles or 332,000 square miles that these fighters are going to have to defend defend a uh, 24-hour combat air patrol of f-15s requires 18 tankers in a 24-hour period and these are all of the things that are going through my mind as i'm driving into work and i realize that we're going to have to expend transfer about 14 12 to 14 million pounds of gas in a 24 hour period. And this is going to go on for nobody knew how long. So that's my thought process as I'm driving into work. I'm already beginning to work uh, in my mind, all of the tactical plans, all of the procedures, how much gas it's going to cost. We have to configure the airplanes accordingly. The tanker has the boom on the back, but at that time period, we didn't have the wingtip uh, basket pods made by Cobham, you know, an, an English company. Uh, they weren't in the fleet yet. So we either were doing uh, probe and drogue airplanes or boom airplanes. Now, when I got into work, they had just closed the entire U.S. airspace. So airplanes were beginning to land <clears throat> all over the U.S., uh, there was a lot of radio calls going out telling everybody land now at the, at the closest airfield and airplanes were launching from different bases. A good friend of mine flies for the Fresno air national guard and they are air defense F 16s. He got a similar call from the time he got called to the time that he was in an F 16 
patrolling over San Francisco International Airport was only 45 minutes. <clears throat> and he and his wingman had to work out a lot of the procedures that we go through while they were flying because we didn't have rules of engagement for this kind of event across the United States. So many of us around the United States got wake up calls early in the morning and we were flying combat missions 30 minutes after we got our phone calls. <clears throat> As I got into work, the next airplane to hit the Pentagon uh, was being televised. And I can't describe to you the emotions that you feel when you're watching your country under attack. It's one of rage, one of anger, but also one of sorrow and uh, worrying about the people that may have lost their lives. But you have to keep going. And you, and you can't let that bother you. You have a mission to do, and you have to keep going. So fortunately, when I got in, a gentleman whose call sign is Weibo was the wing scheduler and was already scheduling aircraft and crews, putting crews in crew rest. And we finally got our first tasking. And it wasn't to support F-15s. It was to Bozeman, Montana. And I couldn't understand why in the world are we sending our very first sortie out to Bozeman, Montana. And here's the reason why. There was a federal emergency management team that was critical to the things that were going on in New York that had been participating in an exercise in Bozeman, Montana. So our first sortie was to go and pick up this team in Bozeman, Montana and then take them from Bozeman back to Washington, D.C. Uh, the aircraft commander of the tanker was on alert with me about three days later, and he said it was the creepiest mission he'd ever flown. Because normally when you're flying these kinds of missions, <clears throat> there's a lot of radio chatter with uh, the airplanes talking to the uh, control centers and so forth. And as he was flying through Chicago uh, Center's airspace, there wasn't a word on the radio. And he said it was just creepy not hearing anything on the radio. He asked the Chicago Center folks, you know, is there any other airplanes flying? No, you and a two ship of F-16s are the only airplanes I'm controlling right now. The F-16s got on the frequency and said, hey, you know, what kind of airplane are you? Are you guys Okay. We're fine. We're a tanker. And the F-16 guy says, hey, uh, we'd really like some gas if you've got some time. And they did a, uh, a turn on rejoin and gave them some gas on the way uh, to Washington, D.C. They landed in Washington, D.C. a couple hours later. The 20 people of the Federal Emergency uh, Management uh, Agency got off the airplane and then they waited for their next mission. I got back home about two o'clock in the morning, Wednesday morning, uh, got about six hours sleep and then had to go back into work because now the United States airspace has to be defended. 
It is now a battle space requiring defense of all the major population centers. And we didn't have a plan for that. We had never thought of creating a plan for an event like that. I had just left the KC-135 division of the weapons school. So I was uniquely trained to be able to create this air refueling plan. And two of our graduates from that school ended up going to Florida and they created the air refueling plan for the entire United States. Uh, Every city that needed to be defended from all of the, with all of the F-15, F-16s, F-14s, F-18s, the E-2 Hawkeyes, the, the AWACS, all of those airplanes needed refueling except for the Hawkeye. So it was a very complicated plan to be able to, create and have to do it quickly. Uh, The plan that we came up with, uh, we did in about an hour and a half. Um, And as requirements came in for air refueling and patrol stations over the different cities, that plan began to change too. So all of this is covered in the, one of the chapters of the book called clear invisibility unlimited. And one of the unique things about this book and the reason why I wrote this book is to give all of you a behind the scenes look at the planning and the execution and scheduling that we have to go through uh, as tankers. We always say nobody kicks ass without tanker gas, nobody. And it's really true. The KC-135, KC-10 fleet, uh, your Voyager fleet that you have in the United Kingdom uh, the French uh, CFR 135s, <clears throat> they really reach out and touch everyone because modern air campaigns or contingency operations cannot run with massive amounts of gas. And when I talk about these massive amounts of gas, we offloaded 417 million pounds of jet fuel during the opening shock and awe campaign of Iraqi freedom. That amount of gas will allow a Ford F-150 truck to make 2,605 round trips to the moon. So when we're talking a lot of gas, that's the kind of gas we're, uh, we're getting into. Okay. So that's a little bit about my book. And the reason I, I wrote it again is so that you, the readers can see an aspect of air operations that there is no books out there about and you can see some of the things that we have to think about and go through as we develop these air campaign plans that require massive amounts of fuel to continue running and to continue operating uh, not only in wartime, but uh, peacetime disaster relief also such as the tsunami relief we had to do in the uh, Southeast Asia or the earthquakes we did in Haiti. Uh, Recently here in the United States, the hurricane Irma that came across Florida, all of those airplanes that were taking stuff uh, down for relief efforts uh, got refueled. So, Well, it's certainly like an interesting book. So like if you guys want to get it, this is it. Uh, Tanker pilot lessons from the cockpit. And now Mark's going to ask uh, answer all your questions. So I'm sure if you get them 
coming in now. I'm sure you can answer them for you. So, Mark, take it away. All right. I've got uh, the live chat here and uh, waiting for anybody to ask a question here. John Ellis asked a good question about helicopter refueling. What we would do is we would actually put the gas in the C-130, MC-130, and the MC-130, the C-130s can slow down enough to refuel the helicopters via the wing pods. And, and I've actually done that from a helicopter and uh, did it at night uh, on night vision goggles off of the coast of Okinawa, Japan which was uh, really fascinating. And that was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. There was a refueling um, track called uh, Shark Rock at 1,500 feet. And since we were at night, what was really unusual is we could see the uh, scuba divers and their flashlights under us, which was uh, really cool. Uh, so that's how we refuel. That's how we get fuel out of my jet into the helicopters via the C-130. Hope that helps you, John. John, KC-130s in the Marine Corps aren't refuelable, so uh, they take off with a lot of gas in the back. Uh, but I've done a lot of MC-130s, uh, and I think I've only done AC-130s, I think, one time in my career, which is unusual, 24-year career, uh, not to do AC-130s. But I did a lot of MC-130s because they were based with us over in uh, Okinawa, Japan. James Mintram, what goes through your mind when tanking old airplanes over a combat zone that require an ignited afterburner, such as the tornado? Is the increased IR threat concerning at all? Great question, James, because I had to deal with this in uh, Iraqi freedom. What we would do is we would schedule the tanker, James, down at a lower altitude instead of higher altitudes so that the tornadoes wouldn't have to go into burner. We couldn't help that they, as they got heavy weight, they would go into minimum burner. Uh, so we lowered the altitude down a little bit. Now <clears throat> over Iraqi airspace, we moved on the fourth night of the war, uh, tanker airspace refueling areas into Iraq and of course, we had to defend those too. And we had came up with a really interesting way of doing that. But as part of our planning, James, we would look at the different airframes and would create the um, refueling airspace accordingly. And the tornadoes, uh, particularly out of Prince Sultan, which was the air defense tornadoes, we did at a lower altitude, 18,000 feet, 17,000 feet. So they wouldn't have to go into afterburner uh and suck up all that gas. That's how we got around that problem, James. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, have I ever had a Tomcat Hornet take uh, your basket home with him? Me personally, Jeffrey, I have not, but uh, have been involved when I was running the air refueling uh, portion of the air campaign, uh, did uh, have several uh, baskets come off. And here's an interesting story about that. Uh, Cobham, who makes the air refueling pods, 
had just put out what we call the multi-point refueling system or MIPPERS pods for the KC-135. And we found out that the take-up reels for the hoses were set at five knots of overtake instead of 10, as the Navy uh, manuals say. And so they were getting this huge sine wave that would go up to the pod, come back, and it would snap the, the baskets off. We call them basket slaps. And much to Cobham's credit, and thank you anybody out there that works for Cobham, they sent a team of uh, field service engineers over and readjusted all of those take-up reel uh, springs and everything. And once everybody slowed down, we didn't have any problems uh, with the uh, take-up hoses. Okay. All right. Um, going back here to real quick to look at a couple of other questions. How much quicker is boom compared to the pods, Tony? <clears throat> Another great question that we have to think about in our planning. The boom, we can, we can put about 6,000 pounds a minute, Tony, through the boom. The B-52 will take 100,000 pounds, so we're still hooked up to him for almost 20 minutes. Our rule of thumb for planning was 6,000 pounds a minute for the bombers and 3,000 pounds a minute for the fighters because we can only use two pumps because their pipes are smaller. Their air refueling plumbing is smaller. For the Tomcat and the Hornets, we use 1,000 pounds a minute through the hose, and that was a really good uh, rule of thumb and planning factor for us to use when we were uh, doing that kind of planning. So the boom is a lot quicker because it's a very large pipe. Uh, like I said, we could pump 6,000 pounds a minute, but we were um, capped at 1,000 pounds a minute because of the size of the hoses that were on the uh, the droves. Okay. All right. Uh, what's the longest sortie I've ever flown? The longest story I ever flown was 14.7. And that is a long time to be in an airplane. We were going from uh, Fairchild Air Force Base to somewhere in the Pacific. Where were we going? We were going somewhere in the South Pacific. So uh, that's a really long time to be in uh, a tanker. I think I brought three box lunches for that flight. Uh, Tony asks, what is the highest altitude we can realistically refuel at? And another great planning question. Normally, Tony, we didn't like to go higher than 28,000 feet. I have gone as high as 32,000 feet with some fighters, but because of the thinner air, they had to go into min afterburner to stay with us. Okay. So normally we plan no higher than 28,000 feet for the bombers, uh, for the uh, AWACS, the rivet joint, uh, the fighters and so forth. And that's kind of a holdover from the Vietnam war, 315 knots, 28,000 feet. The B one, we actually refuel at a lower uh, altitude uh, again, because of its weight, uh, as it gets more gas, it obviously gets heavier. We don't want it to go into min burner because it's got four engines sucking down gas at 2,000 pounds a minute. Uh, so 
again, all of those kinds of things go into our planning factors. John Ellis, have you seen a receiver aircraft PIO while trying to tank in the basket? Numerous times. And here's one of the things, John, that uh, will help you understand this. A lot of the Navy receivers never get uh, KC-135, or they call it big wing tanking experience, before they deploy, which really is sad. And the first time that some of these young Navy lieutenants plug into the basket is when they're flying their first combat mission over Afghanistan. And to me, that's a foul. But unfortunately, that's the way it is right now. And I tried to change that uh, several times uh, when I was deployed over to the Gulf, but uh, could never, for some reason, get that turned around. Okay. Uh, So I flew helicopters uh, one time and it was with a 33rd rescue helicopter squadron. Um, Declan out of Kadena air base, Japan. I was doing it to gain uh, education on helicopter uh, missions, rescue particularly. Uh, I flew, I think it was a three hour helicopter mission. We did night water pickups, did air refueling or to air refueling point behind a, uh, C-130 that was uh, parked on the ramp uh, where they land and reel out the hoses to the helicopters. It was really an interesting uh, uh, evolution. John Ellis asks, KC-135 version with the CFM-56 engines I flew for almost 13 years. And those engines were fantastic. Um, I only had problems on two flights where I had to shut down those engines, John, they ran religiously and they increased our air fueling capability by almost 40% from the old A models. Okay. I mean, they were really, really good engines. Okay. Um, Miko, I've understood that you took part in SAC cold war era, nuclear alert uh, duties. Could you tell us, your view on the survivability of the tanker force in case of a Soviet first strike. Nico, that's a great question. And one of the chapters in the book is called Klaxon, Klaxon, Klaxon. I was at Pease Air Force Base for five years, and we would be on alert every third week with nuclear-armed FB-111s. Specifically, you're asking the survivability of the tanker force and the bomber force. We had really pretty good indications of when or if there was going to be some type of nuclear first strike. Intercontinental ballistic missiles, we had quite a bit of time. The one threat that we were the most concerned about, Miko, was the submarine threat because they could get in very close. And I cover in the book uh, two weeks in September of 1987, where we had a Russian submarine come across what we called the 15 minute line, meaning the, from the time they launched the missile to the time of impact was only 15 minutes, but we had procedures to get all of the airplanes out 
quickly. And that timing is still classified from what I understand. But we felt pretty good about our survivability uh, once we launched uh, because we knew that there would be airplanes uh, up defending us as we got closer to Europe or, or so forth. So that discussion always went back and forth. You know, are we going to live through this? Are we not going to live through this? And I always felt that the procedures that we had created in Strategic Air Command uh, gave us a pretty good survivability rate. Uh, John Ellis, again, a friend was in command when two F-18 uh, traded paint using a 707 and a wing pods. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we've had a 135 trade paint with an F-111 during Desert Storm. During a night air refueling when uh, things got a little bumpy during because of some weather and they scraped paint. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Felmuth. Hello, Flounder. Jeff Felmuth just uh, logged on here. Uh, and he said he saw the link on Twitter. Folks, I want to tell you about my good friend, Jeff Felmuth, Flounder. He and I worked some really critical refueling plans for operations over North Korea. He was one of the F-15 pilots. Uh, in the 67th Fighting Cox, we were working in wing plans together, and we had a fantastic time working together on some really tough problems. And uh, that is a relationship I cherish. So uh, good to see you, Flounder. Uh, Rena, how good or bad do you feel the KC-135 fleet is aging? Did you ever experience any moments that remind you of how old the airframes are? Uh, Rena, that's a great question. Flying a 60 year old airplane is, uh, it, it never bothered me to tell you the truth. Um, Mike and I were just talking not too long ago. I have been to the depot maintenance facility in, uh, Oklahoma city and watched how they maintain this KC-135 airframe. And it is an amazing thing to see. The building where they do this, Rena, is where they used to build the B-29s. It's almost three quarters of a mile long. It's a huge building. And <clears throat> yes, the airplane is aging and it's got 1950s technology. So it's got 1950s uh, hydraulic uh, systems in it, uh, fuel systems and so forth. But I knew, Rena, that they were taking such good care of the airplane at depot that I was really never concerned about flying the airplane. Uh, there was a couple times when the airplane was broke and I was really worried. There was one time where I actually had an airplane on fire under the wood floor in the cargo compartment and didn't know it because a bleed duct, what we call a bleed duct failure, had a crack in it, and it scorched the bottom of a piece of plywood uh, to about uh, uh, a coin's thickness, and the paint was bubbling on the floor. But I've never, Arena, had any problem thinking or feeling concerned about flying such an older airplane. <clears throat> uh, James, did you ever have the opportunity to transfer from multi-engine aircraft to fast jets or helicopters throughout your career. Uh, 
they have a number of cross flow uh, programs, James, to do that. Uh, but James, I was fortunate to be at Kadena, and again, Belmuth will uh, confirm this. We had a fantastic wing commander by the name of Jeff Cliver, Brigadier General Jeff Cliver. And he opened all the cockpits to everybody. He wanted everybody to learn how everybody was doing their business. And I got to fly in F-15s while I was there, the, the AWACS while I was there, the helicopters while I was there. It was a tremendous, tremendous educational assignment for me. I love flying at, at Kadena. The missions were fantastic. We were involved in a lot of different things. And, I mean, really critical, uh, life-saving things. And I got to fly in F-15s uh, and see refueling from the other. And uh, there's a picture in the book where I'm flying with uh, somebody Jeff and I know, uh, Ken Wilsbach, who's now a three-star general. Uh, but I never uh, participated in a cross, what we call the cross-flow program to uh, airlift or to fighters. But that does, in fact, happen. And a matter of fact, we have a program where you can go fly Navy airplanes, too. So, uh, all right, John, the, I never met Brian Shaw and the SR 71s left nine months before I got there. I'm just scrolling up to see if I missed anything. 1978 DCN. This is great. I'm watching this interview while listening to, uh, 3575 refuel a reach flight over my place in Nova Scotia right now. Uh, 1978. I have been to that air refueling track many times. Um, it's AR 20. I've refueled C 141s, C 5s, and the B 2 bombers that went in January of 2017 to Libya to bomb the terrorist training camps refueled on that same uh, AR-20 track that goes, uh, uh, I think it ends at Yarmouth uh, on Nova Scotia. I've been there many times at night. Uh, funny, I never went there during the daytime. I was always there at night with some airlifter going across, but uh, I, I know exactly which uh, track you're talking about, 1978. All right, I'm going to scroll up here uh, and get some more uh, of your comments and questions here. Jeffrey uh, McQuaid, you asked a really good question about the bow wake of a C5. So we really have to be careful when we're fueling what we call heavy receivers. The C5 has a huge bow wave under around its nose. So does the C17. And what we would do is if we're autopilot on with the altitude hold on, we'd watch the trim wheel next to us spinning and we'd want it to see it do one complete revolution for every 10 feet, it would get closer to the boom. So the boom operator would call 50 feet, 40 feet, 30 feet, and we could look down at the trim wheel and see if it was keeping up. Now, we had a training event that we had to do where we would have heavy receivers behind us autopilot off and you could really feel that bow wave come under you and, and 
they would come in slowly because of that. And each time the boom operator called 50 feet, 40 feet, we'd put in like a dit of trim like this, okay, one, two, three, which would give it one complete revolution to help offset that, okay? Uh, the C5 also had to back out slowly because if it moved too fast, it would suck us down with it. And when it did that, that made things really interesting <laughs> for everybody concerned, okay? Um, John Ellis, you ask, what's the max airspeed for a fighter on the boom? Uh, 315 knots is what we used. Uh, whenever we were moving them from the States to uh, Europe or the Middle East, we always maintained 315 knots indicated airspeed, 28,000 feet. Uh, F-15s would come in and get gas when we were moving them about every 40 minutes. F-16s was about every 25. Um, I've never had to move uh, Hornets or Tomcats uh, across the Atlantic or the Pacific. Um, so that's how we, we would refuel them. Uh, I talked to a F-4G wild weasel pilot. They were 15 hours in the air when they moved from Seymour Johnson, North Carolina to their base in Bahrain. And uh, I think he said they had 11 refuelings uh, and it was off of three different KC-10s when they did it. So, um, and again, 315 knots, 28,000 feet is our rule of thumb. Uh, let me see uh, if there's other questions here. Uh, shoot, we had somebody come and, and wrote it in Cyrillic. I wish I, I would really love to find out what this question is from one of our Greek uh, or Russian uh, folks. What's the main difference between the 135 and the KC-10? Is a great question, uh, Dirk. Uh, the 135 is, of course, a smaller airframe. Uh, KC-10 is based off of the DC-10 airliner. Uh, to give you a, an idea of the difference in fuel loads and planning uh, requirements, typically on a combat mission, the KC-135 takes off with 180,000 pounds of gas. Uh, the KC-10 takes off with 320,000 pounds of gas. The our model KC-135, the R&Ts burn 10,000 pounds an hour, which was our rule of thumb. The KC-10 burns 20,000 pounds an hour. Uh, the KC-10 can also uh, carry cargo. I think it's 20 pallets of cargo. So when it came time to move a fighter squadron, the KC-10s were really critical, Dirk, because we could put about 75 passengers uh a good amount of their uh, maintenance package and so forth in the back of the airplane. And they could drag the F-15s or F-16s on the wings and refuel them as they would move them to like say Kadena or to uh, Spangdalem. And that's why the KC-10 is such a great airplane. And the KC-46 will be such a great airplane because it can do this dual role of not only refueling, but airlifting at the same time. And what we would do, Dirk, is the KC-135s would come and give the KC-10 80 to 100,000 pounds uh, 
every time they hooked up to replenish its fuel supply, and, and that's how they were able to move it. <clears throat> oh, thank you, Nevin, for telling me what the Russian comment was. I appreciate that. <clears throat> uh, Rena, uh, was I involved in Operation Allied Force over Kosovo? Yes, I was. I was working at the Vicenza Kayak uh, Combined Air Operations Center at Vicenza, Italy, which is what they call Kayak South. I was uh, doing planning and execution of all the air fueling missions and then had the wonderful opportunity to go out to Aviano and do planning from Aviano with, with the big wing out there. And I was taking Rena 60 rolls of film a week. It was an incredible place to take pictures. I uh, got a, a photo pass from uh, one of the colonels there. And uh, some of the pictures that you'll see uh, on my Facebook page, which is called uh, Pumping Gas, uh, has pictures from that particular war. So thank you for that question, Rena. William McMahon. Uh, James, Dirk, you're welcome uh, answering that question. That's a great question because a lot of people ask that question about the differences in the 135. Let me say a little bit about the KC-46 real quick. Uh, once that airplane is fielded, that is going to be a fantastic airplane because now, again, we'll have the same capability as the KC-10 um, it'll need gas a little bit more because it doesn't carry as much, but to have that airlift capability and that air refueling capability in the same airplane that you can put cargo, you can put passengers, I can refuel boom receivers, I can refuel, uh, basket receivers and the airplane is air refuelable. That's a tanker planner's dream. And Rena, during the war in Kosovo, uh, many of you out there uh, familiar with Afghanistan and Iraq, the KC-10 was the only aircraft we had that was capable of doing that. And it was really a planning headache. And I constantly would tell <clears throat> uh, people, this is what we need. Air refuelable tanker that has baskets and booms and can carry cargo. And I later was able to talk with Boeing when they were developing the KC-46 and Northrop Grumman um, and Airbus when they were developing the A330, you can't make this tanker without these specific things. It has to be air refuelable. It has to be boom and drogue capable. You have to be able to go from boom to drogue quickly. And it takes about two minutes to change between the two. You have to be able to carry passengers and cargo at the same time, all on the same mission. And finally, we now have a, a tanker that can do that, not only the KC-10, but the KC-46. The 135 carries cargo, and the 135 does the boom or the drogue, but there's only eight air refuelable KC-135s, and they're all specifically tasked by the special operations community. So nothing we can do about that. And, and unfortunately, when the KC-135 was made, they didn't feel that they needed to have a receptacle in them because there were 732 of them made. So... Uh, Let's see what else. The KC-46 is different jet in a lot of ways. Yep, it sure is. Uh, you know, thank heavens that they're able to do that. 
Boeing uh, uh, created this airplane that uh, can do all of these different missions. Also, I want to mention too, uh, air medical evacuation is also a really important um, mission for the tankers because you can load uh, patients, critical patients in the KC-135 and move them from theater to theater, which is uh, a really good uh, capability for it. Okay. All right. I'm just checking some of my uh, things here. Um, Wombology asks, what does a tanker change from boom to drogue without refueling pods or the drogue on the wings? The KC-10 has both a boom and a drogue on the center line, and it also has wingtip pods on some of the airplanes, not all of them. Okay. The checklist from going from bringing the boom up and reeling out the drogue, the KC-10 folks tell me takes about two minutes. So it's fairly quick when they do that. Uh, if you have to use the centerline drogue, okay? Obviously, with the wingtip drogues, you just bring the boom up, trail out the wing pods. Or they call them warp pods, wingtip air refueling pods, and uh, you go about your business. But we scheduled two minutes for that to take place when we were doing all of our air refueling planning for timing and so forth, okay? Miko. Ask, would you say there's an esprit de corps among tanker crews? I've read about KC-135 crews who pushed deep into northern Vietnam uh, with great personal risk to deliver gas for fighters and bombers uh, that were in need. I would tell you there's a great esprit de corps amongst the tanker crews. They're very overworked and very overwhelmed with the number of things they're doing right now, Miko. But uh, the crews that I talk to are really enjoying what they're doing uh, across the spectrum of the different missions that they're doing also. Uh, you bring up an interesting comment about pushing deep into North Vietnam. On the fourth night of Iraqi freedom, we had to put tankers in Iraqi airspace because the army was racing so fast and covering so much ground to get to um, their targets around Baghdad and so forth that we had to move into Iraqi airspace. And someone asked a question a little bit ago, uh, you know, how did we defend the airplanes? And I'll get into that here in just a second. Uh, but we moved them into Iraqi airspace and we built them the standard size, 30, about 30 miles wide, 70 miles long, um, and I named them all after female country western singers. We opened Reba for Reba McIntyre and Shania, Shania Twain, were the first two that we opened in Iraqi airspace on the fourth night of the war, directly south of Baghdad. Um, all of the Iraqi airspace, air fueling areas were all named after female country western singers, uh, which people got a big kick out of. Uh, and we began to get some uh, fire events against the tankers. So what we did was we created retrograde procedures. We also incorporated special forces to look for the air defense systems on the ground that were shooting at them. 
there was not a MIG threat during Iraqi freedom. Uh, they only flew, I think, about nine missions. Um, we had A-10s running around underneath the Iraqi tracks to uh, find any of the targets that were shooting at us, uh, any of the missile systems or guns that were shooting at us. Uh, they were very successful at that. And uh, once the Iraqi uh, air defense people found out that we were seriously hunting them via special forces, ATANs, other fighters, and so forth, uh, those uh, fire events uh, dropped significantly. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> uh, let's see. Wondering about the KC-10. I'm glad I was able to answer your question. Uh, that's a great question by this, uh, by the way, Wombology. That's a, a planning factor that a lot of people don't think about. You know, how do you going from boom to drogue and how long will it take to refuel, uh, uh, folks? Okay. Let me scroll up here, make sure I, uh, get some Tony. You ask, are the MIPPERS pods interchangeable between aircraft? Only we bought, uh, what was it? 45 pod sets, but only 33 aircraft were uh, equipped to carry them. All of the plumbing that you had to do from the wingtips and beefing up the wingtips and putting the pods out there. So they're interchangeable amongst those 33 airplanes. Uh, there's 20 KC-10s that are warp pod uh, capable. And yes, the pods can all go between the, the different airplanes. Uh, it, they're not right or left pods. Uh, you can put, you know, any pod on the right or the left, um, which makes the maintenance, uh, and the upkeep of the pods easy. Uh, so hopefully that answers that question. Okay. I wish they had made more KC-135s capable of carrying the wingtip pods. I personally would have liked to have seen at least a hundred or more. But at that time period, we were already looking at the KCX program, which was going to be the KC-46, and they just didn't want to sink the money into a 60-year-old airplane. So um, that's why they did it, all right? All right, let me go down here a little bit more and catch up here, okay? Okay, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong. Uh, Debera... Pilot asks, do you have the option to carry parachutes for real-world missions? We used to have seven parachutes in the airplane. When I started in the old SAC days, that was actually part of our pre-flight because we had to go back and pre-flight the parachutes. Uh, my first combat mission when I flew in Desert Storm, I had a parachute on. Uh, I thought it was a little... Overkill, I was sitting on 145,000 pounds of gas. If I got hit with 145,000 pounds of gas, they were going to see the explosion in Tel Aviv and Tehran. So on day three of the war, I quit wearing a parachute. And I understand now they no longer carry the parachutes in the airplane. The, air, the airplane, even as old as it is, is extremely safe. It's going to continue to run until 2040. Uh, the airplane, uh, is very well kept. Uh, I don't see any problems uh, with flying the jet, you know, till it's 90 years old. Can you imagine that? A 90 year old airplane, KC 135, 
KC uh, or the B-52 will be 90 years old maybe when they get rid of them. All right. Let me see if I can answer some more. James, who currently flying combat operations over Syria flew the F-22? I don't know. Do you think general officers can lead from the front while flying combat missions? James, I'll give you one name. Robin Olds. I realize he was a colonel, but if you have that kind of leadership and that kind of a person leading from the front, and there are quite a few of them out there that I would compare to the to him and his unique leadership style, I would say yes. And general officers have flown missions. I, I have a picture of a two-star general in the end of runway for his last chance, getting ready to fly an F-15 mission uh, during Operation Southern Watch about two months before the war started. So, yes, general officers uh, fly some of these combat missions. Uh, yep, that's leading from the front, in my opinion. So there you have it. John Ellis, you ask another really good question that, that we discussed for a long time at the KC-135 Weapons School. A lot of 737s versus KC-46s. You can put a billion pounds in the air, but if you have only one contact point for that billion pounds to go through, it's ineffective and inefficient. And we actually did an exercise where we looked at how many tankers do you need to be able to support an opening night air campaign like Iraqi freedom. And this is after the war. And we looked at some of the, using some of these smaller, really fuel efficient 737, 600, 700, 800 type of airframes that can become many type of tankers where they're air refuelable baskets, drogues on them, and you can spread them out and uh, have more contact points. That would be ideal. Uh, Fiscal constraints uh, keeps that from happening. I'll add one other thing to that too, James, because this is really a great question you're asking here. I hope somewhere down the line, they look at putting some type of intelligence collection equipment in the tankers. The tankers are always some of the first airplanes to show up in theater. They're some of the first airplanes to fly missions. The RC-135 rivet joint, the AWACS are not too far behind them. And it would be great to have a networked, intelligence collection system. And I'm not talking about analysis on the tankers. I'm just talking about collection, data linking and dissemination of getting all that information out there. That was one thing I've talked to several of the big manufacturers, Airbus, Boeing, and uh, other companies about being able to put some type of small intelligence collection package that you can bolt on, bolt off, plug in, plug out uh, with sensors already built into the airplane that can bring all of that information because they're flying around the same airspace. They're being painted by the same electrons. 
it would be great to have other methods of locating these things uh, that are looking at us and are talking to uh, about us and so forth. So that's something I've put to people, but uh, never got uh, never got very far. Um, but could you tell us where we can find your book? Sure. Uh, the best place to find Tanker Pilot Lessons from the Cockpit is on Amazon right now. And I don't know in, in Europe if it's in the bookstores yet, but uh, I know Amazon um, Germany has it. And uh, that is actually the, the least inexpensive place to go find it right now. And I've gotten instant messages from people uh, in other countries that have bought it on Amazon and had it shipped to them and uh, got it within a couple of days too. So that's how I do it. Well, that's brilliant. I'm, I'm sure like the guys, obviously um, I'm, you're going to go out and buy the book, I'm sure. But uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, I think it was uh, an absolute pleasure. Well, it was a pleasure for me and uh, I'm sure the guys, you know, in the chat would, love to see you on here again so if you're willing to come on and you know in the next few months and um, you're more than welcome mark i'm always willing to come talk to uh, this audience i appreciate this audience coming in uh asking the questions that you did okay i i really enjoy doing this but i I want to get the word out about air refueling because this is an aspect of air operations that few people read about there's not a lot of books out there or understand and it's and it's vital that everything that everything we do uh modern air campaigns and modern air operations just are not capable to function anymore without airborne gas and i appreciate the questions that your viewers have brought to me because they're they were really really good questions and i'm grateful for all of you that have dialed in tonight and have asked all these questions and have uh, spent time uh, talking to me about this. Thank you very much, all of you, for uh, allowing me to do this. And uh, Mike, you schedule the time and I'll be there, okay, brother? Mm -hmm.